to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Ina Corio, and Philippe Delamadrog. No, I don't have multiple personalities. I'm a fanfiction writer with three pen names. And I love to talk about writing and help people write better. This will be the last, thus far, episode with my writing tips. These were gleaned from the community education class I did some years ago, which were, in turn, gleaned from an article I wrote even longer ago called Tips from a Successful Fanfiction Writer. Last episode, I shared my favorite paragraph from that article, the paragraph about evil. <laughs> I love that one, but I like the part I'm going to talk about today even better. But first, I want to read you a story. This one is my first fanfiction short story. I started writing fanfiction with a novel, believe it or not. Then I followed up with an even more ambitious novel. So this really was my first short story as a fanfiction writer. It's called Healer, and seeing as it works as a sequel for an episode, I need to tell you about the episode. So let's set the stage. The Quickening was a moving episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Dr. Bashir and Jadzia Dax find a planet where everyone has lesions on their skin and there is no electronic technology. The inhabitants were given a disease by the Dominion, which wiped out their technological advances because it was a terminal disease everyone was born with. When their legions turned from green to red, they began to quicken, and that meant they began to die very painfully. The Starfleet officers witnessed a death ceremony where a local healer, Trevian, gives quickened, the quickened person a lovely meal and then a poison drink so they die peacefully. This horrifies Bashir, who sets out to try to find a cure for the disease. He gets a few people to allow him to try, but when they all begin to quicken at the same time, Trevian sweeps in to help. The devices Bashir brought with him sped up the disease in his subjects and caused them to quicken. The one inhabitant who still believes in him shows up quickening. She's pregnant and wants to live long enough to see her baby. Now, she'd been pregnant through the whole episode. This isn't a new thing. Bashir goes old school and tries to develop a cure without modern technology. She endures the pain of the quickening to see her baby. Bashir induces labor when he feels the infant can survive. When the baby is delivered, it has no lesions. The mother holds her baby and then dies. Bashir gives the baby to Trevian along with instructions on how to make the vaccine so that no more babies need to be born with the disease. Healer begins with an invitation for Bashir. Trevian is dying, and he wants Bashir at his ceremony. Standard disclaimers apply. Healer by Gabrielle Lawson Captain's Log, Stardate 50746.3. Starfleet has been contacted by a Vulcan research vessel in the Obata system in the Gamma Quadrant. The Vasul disappeared three months ago and was presumed destroyed or taken by the Jim Hadar. The Defiant has been dispatched to investigate. Captain, Kira said with subdued urgency, I'm picking up a modified distress signal. Dax swiveled her chair to look at the Major. Modified? It's an automated signal, Kira confirmed, one we've heard before. This one's for Julian. Curious, Captain Sisko wanted to have her put it on audio, but it was addressed to the doctor. He tapped a control, opening a comm channel. Bashir to the bridge. Bashir answered almost immediately. On my way. Major, Sisko asked while he waited for the doctor to arrive, where's the signal coming from? Baranus 3, she answered, but she was looking at Dax. Has something gone wrong? Dax asked, her brow furrowed with worry. The children. 
Kira shook her head but didn't have time to answer. The turbo lift doors opened on the other side of the bridge. Dr. Bashir stepped out and came to his customary position just behind and to the left of the captain's chair. You wanted to see me, sir? You have a message, Sisko told him and then turned toward Kira. Major? Kira turned her chair around, back around to face her console and pressed a few controls. We can skip the general message. It's outdated anyway. Finally, she had the message set to begin with the modified portion. Audio only, she warned the others. Then a male voice replaced hers as the message began to play. Dr. Bashir, the general vo gentle voice began almost serenely. The time has come. Dax spun around to look at Julian. Trevian, she whispered. The message continued. You gave me a new hope I thought I'd lost forever. You have changed my life, and I would be honored if you were here to share the end of it. I will wait for you as long as I can. I will understand if you cannot attend. Trevian's voice paused for just a moment. In case I don't see you, thank you. The message ended and began to repeat from the beginning with its centuries-old distress call. Kira cut it off, and the bridge was silent. Everyone was watching Bashir, but he hadn't moved. He seemed stunned and stricken. He stared at the forward view screen as if he could see Trevian's face there. Sisko remembered the report the doctor filed after his two-month stay on Baranus III and how hard Bashir had pushed himself for months afterward to find a cure for the blight, the disease the Jemadar had unleashed on the inhabitants centuries ago for their defiance. Doctor, Sisko prodded. Finally, Bashir stirred. The message, his own voice barely above a whisper, how old is it? Kira had anticipated his question and was prepared with the answer. Four days. Bashir turned. Captain, was all he said, but his eyes pleaded. Sisko hesitated. They had orders, and with the Dominion in the Alpha Quadrant, being in the Gamma Quadrant was even more dangerous than before. They might need the doctor. He glanced around the bridge. Worf at Tactical had returned his attention to his station. O'Brien returned Sisko's gaze with curiosity. But Dax and Kira each had the same look in their eyes as Julian. They'd been there. Dax had seen the planet and the blight, and she'd seen Julian try to fight it. She knew what it meant to him. So he gave in. Set course for Baranus Three, old man. A slight smile graced her face as she nodded and then turned to change course. We can't wait for you, doctor, Sisko warned Bashir. We'll come back for you in three days. Bashir nodded. I understand. He stepped a little closer to Dax. How long? We should make orbit in twenty minutes, she answered. At that, the doctor fell silent. He simply nodded and turned quickly on his heels for the turbo lift. Fifteen minutes later, Bashir was in the transporter room, nervously pacing across the room. It was a small room and only allowed him a few steps before he'd have to turn around and continue the other way. The only other person in the room was the transporter officer, and she tried to keep her eyes on her station, but she looked up occasionally to eye him with a hint of annoyance. He could have paced in his quarters or out in the corridor. Sisko to Bashir. He stopped mid-stride and tapped his comm badge urgently, worried and just a little hopeful that something had gone wrong. Bashir here. We'll be entering orbit in two minutes, doctor, the captain said. Prepare for transport. At just that moment, the door opened and Dax entered the room. She took one look at him and then put on one of her motherly smiles. She put a hand on his shoulder. I'm sure they'll be happy to see you, Julian. It's been a year, Jadzia, he said, a pained expression in his eyes. How many have died in the last year? How many have been born, she retorted gently. You gave them their children, Julian. I've been a parent. 
several times. I know it's the best thing you could have given them. The transporter officer spoke up. Entering orbit, sir. Are you going to be all right, Julian? Dax asked with concern, her smile gone now. Julian didn't answer. He knew she was asking about how he'd handled Trevian's death. He had found him appalling when they first met. Trevian had administered poison to a young woman suffering from the quickening, the last stages of the blight. "'It's been four days,' he said finally, referring to the message. "'Do you think it's already happened?' he asked. Dax thought for a moment and then nodded. "'I think he would wait for you. I wish I could come with you.' Bashir smiled then, one of his well-practiced smiles that he used when he really didn't feel like smiling. He stepped onto the transporter pad and lifted his bag to his shoulder. "'I'll be fine. It's only for three days.' Dax's smile returned, a gentle, sad turning up of the lips. "'Energize.' Julian Bashir rematerialized in the bright sunlight of afternoon on Baranus Three, just as it had been the year before when he and Jedzia had first beamed down. But then there had been a quiet weariness to the atmosphere. Now there was a bustle of activity. Where they'd been nearly ignored before, Bashir's arrival did not go unnoticed. A child spotted him first, a little girl, perhaps seven or eight years old, with long brown hair and green star-shaped lesions marking her face and arms and legs. She grinned widely when she saw him, and her face lit up. "'He's come!' she cried, and they ran, then ran off to tell everyone she knew, "'He's here!' And everyone within earshot turned to see what she was yelling about. Within a few minutes, a crowd had formed around the young doctor, calling his name, telling him of the children that had been born, of all he meant to them, reaching out to try and touch him. But there were only two things Bashir could think of. One of them did him no good at all, and he tried to push it away. The other was urgent, and he shouted to be heard over the din of the crowd, "'Where's Trevian?' Trevian lay in a long, dark bed, shivering beneath several tattered blankets. Sweat lined his brow, which one of his assistants dutifully dabbed with a wet cloth. As Julian entered, he couldn't help but be reminded of Ecoria. How many times had he entered the room to see her shivering the same way, clutching the blankets in pain until her knuckles were white with the strain? A tightness began to form in Bashir's throat. The assistant finally noticed him standing in the doorway and stood. "'He's here,' he whispered to Trevian before nodding to Julian as he slipped past him out the door. Trevian turned his head to see him better, and Julian took a few tentative steps toward the man. It was only on his last day on the planet last year that Trevian had seemed to trust him, perhaps even to like him, and then Julian had wondered if it was only for the vaccine he had found. Of course, he knew it was, to a point. Without the vaccine, Trevian would never have seen that he wasn't just another fraud promising miracles to a world that was beyond them. Trevian had seen him as a threat, not only to himself, his own prestige, but also to his people, offering them false hope and a cure that was not forthcoming. Only Ikoria had trusted Julian for who he was, even when he couldn't promise her a thing. "'Doctor, please,' Trevian rasped out before drawing in a ragged breath. He held out his hand, and despite his pain, he smiled. Forgetting his own uncertainty, Julian felt the doctor in himself take over. He smiled warmly in return and stepped confidently to the side of the bed. Sitting in the chair the attendant had left, Julian took the hand that was offered. Trevian, how do you feel? Better now that you're here, the man said. It was a lot to say, and it caused him to cough. Bashir helped him to sit up a little higher where it might be easier to breathe. I was afraid, he said, and took a deep breath, that you wouldn't get my message, or that you wouldn't come. 
Julian let go of the smile he didn't feel anyway. Trevian, he said, trying his best to sound as sincere as he felt, knowing all it would entail. I would be honored to attend your death. I only wish, he continued, his voice dropping to a whisper, that I could tell you that you didn't have to die. You haven't found a cure. Trevian hadn't asked it. He'd stated it as a simple fact. Those words weighed a great deal to Julian Bashir. He had worked hard through the night after returning to the station until he'd fallen asleep in his chair, and even then he'd dreamed of base pair sequences and viral DNA. He'd never forgotten the blight, not even when his duties took him elsewhere, not even in the Jem'Hadar prison. He'd felt a mission for these people, as if he were the only one holding the one end of the rope that kept them from sliding forever into the abyss. But the longer he held on, without a cure, the further they slipped. And he couldn't help but imagine the number of new deaths that had come about this last year. Julian lowered his eyes and shook his head. Trevian regarded him somnly, the pain gone from his eyes, if only for a moment. This is not your fault, Bashir. Julian knew he was telling the truth. The blight, the quickening, Ecoria's death, and now Trevian's were not, these were not his fault. The Jimadar, the Dominion, had inflicted them. But still, the weight remained. Jadzia hadn't quite understood before when the others had died and when he'd almost given up. He couldn't have told her then, but he had a gift, or a burden, depending on one's particular point of view. His enhanced genetics gave him an intellectual advantage over most other doctors. He should have been able to find a cure, even if all the others had failed. He was supposed to be better, but he had failed. The people of Baranus III were still dying, and all his enhanced genes hadn't been able to stop it. "'Have you seen the boy?' Trevian asked, suddenly smiling again. Julian looked up. "'Ecoria's boy?' "'I came straight to see you.' Trevian's smile faded a moment as he winced and closed his eyes. He took in a sharp breath and held it. Julian instinctively reached for the tricorder he knew he didn't have with him, the EM radiation from his equipment would only have made things worse, as it had for Epran and the others who had volunteered to help him, sacrificing their death ceremonies for the pain of the quickening, so that Bashir might be able to find an antigen to fight the virus. "'I can give you something for the pain,' he offered. Trevian nodded, and Julian opened the small med kit he'd brought with him. It held only a single hypospray and two medicines. He placed one vial in the bottom of the hypospray and held the instrument to Trevian's neck. Finally, Trevian let the breath out and then continued as if nothing were wrong. We won't have the celebration until tonight. You should visit him. And the other children, too. Celebration? Bashir still found it difficult to view death as something to be celebrated and worshipped, even as he admitted it was a release from pain. "'I have a lot to celebrate, Bashir,' Trevian said before another coughing fit took hold of him. Julian found a glass of water by the bed and held it to Trevian's lips. When he'd finished drinking, he continued, "'You, for example, and hope. I have a hope that my father and grandfather and my grandfather's grandfather didn't have. I know that some day my world will be free of the blight.' Before he could stop himself, Julian whispered, "'But you won't be here to see it.' Despite the seriousness in Julian's statement, Trevian laughed. It was a weak laugh, given his condition, but a deep laugh just the same. That hardly matters. It will happen nonetheless. 
Now go, see your child. And to force Julian to obey, Trevian rolled over and closed his eyes. My child, Julian thought as he stepped back out into the sunlight. Though it was late in the afternoon, the contrast from the darkness in the room caused him to squint as he looked out onto the city. His child. Why had Trevian said it that way? The boy was Ikoria's and her husband's, who had died before the baby was born. Bashir had only been there the last couple of months of Ikoria's pregnancy, and had only held the baby on the day of his birth. He wouldn't even been, be able to recognize the one-year-old child the baby had become. Besides, Ikoria had loved her husband. Saying that the child was Bashir seemed disrespectful to the father and to the mother who loved and missed him. So... From where he stood, Bashir could see Ikoria's house, or the building where she had lived, where he had lived the two months that he stayed with her. He almost felt that if he walked up that hill and stepped inside that house, he'd see her again, lying in bed. The tightness in his throat hardened into a painful knot. One of Trevian's assistants tapped his arm. Startled, Bashir turned to see the man who had been tending Trevian inside. Trevian said you wanted to see Laron. Lauren? Ikoria's child, the man explained, grinning widely. He'll be happy to see you. Come. The attendant led him through a maze of streets and alleys to a new part of the city, just at the border to the old. A new building was there. Bashir recognized it from the painting Ikoria's husband had painted. The style was the same as all the others in the old city, but this one was bright and painted in cheerful colors. He could see curtains hanging in the long windows. The yard in front of it seemed a bright green in the overhead sun. Knowing the climate, Bashir surmised that they had had to irrigate the yard by hand. Children played there, laughing happily as they chased each other through the grass. All of them were marked by green lesions on their faces or limbs. Their clothes were ragged in contrast to their surroundings. "'This is for the children,' the man said, smiling with pride. The, "'There are three others like this in the city. All children are welcome.' Some of them live here, others just come to play. We never want for people to care for them. Not any more. He touched Bashir's arm. The younger ones will be inside. Where the other buildings had been dark inside, this one was well lit with candles posted high on the walls. A tall woman, middle-aged, with deep wrinkles around her eyes, stepped forward. She was dressed in a long white coat. Dr. Bashir, she said, holding out her hand. I'd heard you were coming. Bashir took the hand, nodding while he waited for an introduction. It didn't take long. Yelena is our healer for babies and pregnant women. You have certainly made my job a lot more present, pleasant, doctor. Bashir met her eyes, saw the joy there. Still, it didn't ease the knot in his throat. I wish I could have done more. Sensing the awkward moment, Trevian's assistant stepped back from them. I really must be getting back to Trevian. Yelena will show you everything. He smiled again and left Bashir with the woman. Bashir hoped she'd take him directly to the child, but she was intent on giving him a tour. They started up a long flight of stairs. The first room she took him to was painted with children's drawings from floor to ceiling. The walls were lined with chairs. One desk sat beside another doorway. In each chair sat a woman waiting her turn for examination. Sixteen of them were there. Julian felt guilty. Their doctor was busy giving him a tour, but the women didn't seem to mind. They smiled at him, beamed, actually. Some of them waved and thanked him. A couple of them looked older than Bashir, probably nearing the end of their childbearing years. He understood why they would still try to have a child despite the risk involves. Their children would survive now. Most of the others were young, barely past their teens.
As they passed another room, he heard a woman giving birth. They passed another flight of stairs. The sound of laughing children filtered up from the flat floor below. Bashir looked down and saw a group of faces staring back at him, little faces, children, with their lesions, looking up at him, their eyes wide with fear and wonder. All sound had stopped the instant he did at the top of the stairs. "'They are still hoping,' Yelena whispered, taking his arm. Bashir reluctantly turned, allowing her to lead him away from the children. They walked quietly for a few minutes until Yelena stopped at another doorway. "'Some of the mothers who come here are already quickening,' she said. She pulled back the light blue blanket that formed its door. Before, they'd choose to go ahead with the ceremony. Now they come here. We're able to save some of the children. Inside the room were nearly a dozen beds. Only two of them were empty. Some of the women there were sleeping. Others were laying, like Ikoria, shivering and in pain. One of them moaned loudly. Bashir stepped further into the room. How do you help them? Markerut, mostly, Yelena answered. We make a tea out of it. It dulls the pain, and a salve for the lesions, like you made. It helps a little. Bashir was moving toward the moaning woman. She was lying on her side, her legs tucked up toward her belly as far as she could get them. The blanket that covered her was wadded in her white fingers. "'May I?' he asked, looking to Yelena. She nodded. "'Of course.' Wishing again for his tricorder, Bashir gave the woman a brief examination. She had fever. Her pulse was racing unevenly. Her breath came in shallow pants while her body shook violently. She was in the, the advanced stages of quickening. She'd be dead before the Defiant came to pick him up. How much longer? Normally three months, Yelena said, joining him at her side. The baby is still small. She's been receiving the vaccine? Bashir's thoughts were coming quickly. Could the child be saved? They could force the birth of the baby, but it would be very premature. It would be difficult to save it on the station. It would be impossible here. Yelena nodded. We've tried to tell her, she whispered, that the baby won't be born in time. Bashir knew that what she was hinting at. They would give her the drug to kill her if the woman would let them. But she insists on waiting. Bashir remembered how Akoria had gently refused Trevian's offer a year ago. He didn't want to let this woman down. But the baby was still too small. He thought of Keiko O'Brien and Kira Yoshi, how he'd save them both with Kira's help. He knew there would be any number of women who would volunteer to carry this woman's child term, but there was no way to perform the transfer. He didn't even have the minimum medical equipment to a runabout carried. He brushed some loose hair out of the woman's face. I'm sorry, he whispered to her. He took out his hypospray and held it to the woman's neck. She tried to lift a hand to stop him, but she was too weak. He knew what she thought. She thought he was trying to kill her. Bashir shook his head. It's all right. It's only for the pain. She relented, and the hypospray hissed against her neck. Almost instantly, her tensed muscles relaxed. Her lips turned up momentarily into a thin little smile, and then she closed her eyes. Her breath came more deeply, and her pulse relaxed. He had given her more than he gave Trevian. She would sleep for a few hours. They visited all the other rooms, but Julian hard hardly noticed them. His mind was on that woman, and she reminded him of Ikoria, except Ikoria had lived long enough to see her child. Just long enough. Finally, Yelena led Bashir back down the stairs. One large room had been made into a playroom. The faces that greeted him earlier at, from the bottom of the stairs were there waiting for him when he descended. 
They stopped playing and looked expectantly at Yelena. The little girl who had announced his presence to the whole city earlier was there in the center of the small group. She smiled. He remembered her from the year before. She had lived in the same building as Ikoria. Children, Yelena was saying, this is Dr. Bashir. Bashir didn't really hear her. He was drawn instead to the wall beyond the children. Like the building, the wall was curved. Two doors, one opening to the yard outside and the other leading further into the building, dividing, divided the wall into three sections. On the left was a copy of the mural painted by Ikoria's husband, showing the city as it had been in the time before the Dominion and the Blight. The right was painted in the same style. However, it showed the city from a different angle. The sun shone brightly, gleaming on the new buildings. Happy, well-dressed people shopped in a market in the city square or lingered in the streets to talk with friends. Bashir could see farmland in the distance. The center panel could have been a photograph of the city beyond the grassy green yard. Old buildings, broken windows, a dull, bleak sky. But just in the center of that mural was a group of people in ragged clothes gathering around a pair of hands that reached above them from the center of the crowd. In those hands was a baby wrapped loosely in a worn blanket. Julian remembered that scene. He had witnessed it a year ago, just before he called for transport. A small hand tugged on his jacket. That's you, said the little girl. She pointed to a lone figure dressed in black standing against the wind on a broken doorway, watching the crowd. That's the past, she continued, pointing to the left, and that's the future. She pointed to the opposite side. Because of you. Bashir looked down at her small face, her smooth skin marred by the ugly green lesions that afflicted her people. She wouldn't see that future. She, he couldn't help her. But she didn't seem to dwell on that. He knelt down and she grabbed his elbow, pulling him closer. I'm going to be like Ikoria, she whispered, as if it was the greatest of secrets. I'm going to have a child who will live in that picture, like Lauren and the others. She smiled broadly, and Julian tried to smile back, but it was hard. His throat hurt too much. She didn't seem to notice. She spun quickly and stood straight, almost like she was coming to attention. May I take Dr. Bashir to the nursery? Yelena looked to Bashir with concerned eyes that seemed to ask if the little girl was being a pest. We've met before, Julian explained. Of course, Mahara. Yelena also smiled, but Julian could tell she was disappointed. Her lips were too tight, too tense for a real smile. She had wanted to show, show him the child. You will be coming with us, of course, Julian offered, hoping to be diplomatic. The tension in her, fa her face eased and her smile became genuine. Of course, she nodded this way. Mahara, he'd never heard the girl's name last time grabbed his hand and pulled him along after Yelena. They went past a few doors and entered another bright room, this one with windows looking away from the city toward the fields and mountains in the distance. Here, small cradles held tiny infants, each with perfect pink skin. Mahara practically tiptoed as she walked through the room. Yelena walked with sure, prideful steps. These children don't have parents any longer, she explained. Those that do live at home. Will they be adopted? Julian asked, looking from child to child. A few of the older ones grinned happily, and he couldn't help but smile in turn. There were other beds there, but they were empty. Not as such, Yelena explained. The whole city raises children here. Most lose their parents before they grow up, like Mahara. Now they have many parents. Everyone cares for them. It will be the same with these children. 
Julian nodded that he understood. Even if they were adopted, the baby's new parents would most likely die within a few years, leaving them orphans again. For now, they live with us here, she continued, but they may choose to live elsewhere when they're older. Lauren is the oldest, of course. He still lives with us. She pulled back the blanket that led into the next room. This room was slightly larger and painted with pictures of animals like Bashir had never seen. Per perhaps twenty toddlers raced around the room, either walking or crawling. Either way, they made a racket, laughing and playing with each other or their simple toys. Some repeated syllables or even whole words over and over. Three adults stood when he entered, a woman and two men. Lauren, one of the men said, grabbing one of the children as he ran past, this is Dr. Bashir. The child had been chasing one of the other toddlers, a little girl, and seemed to be annoyed with the interruption of his play. But the sight of the stranger scared him. He hugged tight to the man, burying his face in his shoulder. He peeked one eye back at Bashir. Julian could only see that one eye, but he knew the boy looked just like his mother. "'You don't remember me,' Julian said, moving one step closer. "'But I remember you.' "'Dr. Bashir took care of your mother,' the old man told the baby, when she was sick.' He tried to make her better. He made sure you weren't sick. Would you like to go to the garden, Lauren? Yelena asked him. Gar! Lauren cried, looking up from the man's shoulder. He pointed out the door. Yes, Yelena assured him. You can go to the garden. Dr. Bashir would like to take you to the garden to play. At that, Lauren nearly threw himself out of the man's arms. All his shyness disappeared as he leaned out toward Bashir, hands stretched out to grab his uniform. Julian took the clue and lifted the boy, little boy from the man's hands. Gar, he ordered, grinning wildly. Yelena laughed. He's a very friendly little boy. I'll show you the way. Lauren's vocabulary proved to be limited to single syllables and his attention span to only ten seconds. He loved the grassy garden and ran on his little feet from one end of the fenced-in yard to the other. He was interested in the bugs crawling through the grass and even the grass itself. Julian had to chase after him just to make sure he didn't stick any of it in his mouth. He seemed to be a particular—it seemed to be a particular favorite activity of the boy. He giggled incessantly at just about anything and was apparently a very happy little child. Julian looked him over as well as he could when the boy didn't wiggle away to pick a weed near the fence or wave at a passing cloud. He saw no sign of lesions, no evidence of the blight. He had been worried that the children would contract the disease anyway, just at a later stage, one year so far. Finally, after what seemed like hours, Lauren grew tired and more interested in his visitor. He was particularly drawn to his shiny communications badge. Lauren crawled into Julian's lap where he was sitting under the one lonely sapling in the garden. He fingered the badge and tried to pull it off. He seemed content there and leaned back into Julian's arms. Not really knowing what else to say to the little boy, Julian began to sing to him. The sun began to set just as the boy's eyes closed and Trevian's assistant came to tell him it was time. Deja vu. The scene he walked into was exactly the same as it had been a year before, only this time he didn't have Dax to go with him. The hospital was dark. Music played softly in, from the corner where a young boy was turning a crank on something reminiscent of an old Victrola. In every corner of the room, a short table was placed, covered with food and lit by a small oil lamp. The last rays of the reddening sun shone in through the torn ceiling and spaces in the walls. 
Trevian sat in one corner, propped up by pillows. Around each table, people sat on pillows, eating and drinking a meager feast. But still, the mood was subdued. Trevian's death was overdue. One pillow remained empty at Trevian's table. With obvious effort, Trevian smiled and extended his hand, indicating that the place had been saved for Bashir. A golden goblet sat on the table in front of Trevian, and Julian knew what it was for. Bashir stepped carefully between the diners and sat down cross-legged on the pillow. He looked to Trevian. Can I give you something for the pain? Trevian nodded. That would be, he answered, clenching his teeth, most appreciated. Bashir opened his bag and pressed the hypospray to Trevian's neck. Trevian relaxed almost immediately. He smiled and closed his eyes, and Bashir was worried that he'd fall asleep, ruining his ceremony. But his eyes opened again. Please, he said, his voice much less strained. Eat. I've been saving this meal for many years. His assistant stepped close to the table, holding a pitcher of something which he poured into a cup in front of Bashir. Did you have any of our Vlesa juice when you were with us before? Trevian asked. I don't know, Bashir answered honestly, remembering his many meals with Ikoria. He had done his best with the unfamiliar fruits and vegetables he'd found. At first, Ikoria would tell him how to prepare them, but after a few weeks she'd been unable to do that. Speaking had been too much of a strain. He sipped at the juice and found it sweet and refreshing after the dry, dusty air outside. It's quite good. There used to be many Vlesa trees in this region, Trevian told him. There will be again, thanks to you. Bashir didn't know what to say. He knew these people were grateful to him, but he couldn't feel their gratitude. He couldn't get it past the regret he had that they would not see their world revived. He took another sip of the juice. Trevian continued to watch him, smiling sadly. He nodded, and one of his other assistants rose from the floor. Trevian, he said, holding his cup in the air, you have served us all for so many years. It is our ple pleasure to serve you today. He sat, and a woman rose from her place. Trevian, she began, holding her cup to him as the man had done. You made our lives more pleasant by making our deaths nothing to fear. For all the peace you offered us, we wish you peace today. Another arose and another until almost everyone had spoken, sharing their tributes to Trevian. A woman, perhaps only sixteen years old, stood finally, but she didn't raise her cup. Trevian, my sister came to you one year ago. Like you, she had already quickened and was in pain. She was brought to you by the man that sits beside you. With a soft heart, you in ended her suffering, and in your wisdom told that man to leave. In his stubbornness, he stayed, and he showed you a way to save our children. You led us to death for many years, but this last you led us to life, and when I close my eyes at night, I see that life. It will be a glorious one. Thank you, Trevian. She raised her cup, but dipped her head in Julian's direction. And thank you, Dr. Bashir, for not listening to him. Trevian laughed and patted Bashir's arm. This is a glorious evening, is it not? Bashir smiled in return, seeing the peace in Trevian's eyes, the absolute joy. It's wonderful, he's, he whispered, not sharing that joy. Trevian braced his arms on the table and tried to stand. Would you help me, doctor? Bashir jumped up. Of course. He took Trevian's arm and helped him rise from the floor. The older man held tight to Julian's shoulder, but he managed to stand. Thank you all for coming, he said, raising his goblet to them. It means so much to me to see you smile, to see you dream. I had thought I'd forgotten how. I am so glad that I lived to see this day. His voice broke, and he took a long drink from the goblet. 
He handed the glass to the woman on his other side and turned to Bashir, touching his face with his hand. I did the best that I could for my people because I love them, he whispered. You didn't even know them, but you did your best too. I am the past, doctor. You are the future. Thank you for coming to us, for letting me see the day. His voice broke, became strained again, and he clasped Bashir's hand. When my people could hope again. He convulsed sharply and began to fall. Bashir held him, eased his descent, and laid him back on the pillows with the help of the others near him. Trevian continued to twitch and convulse for a few more seconds, choking on his own breath until finally it stopped. He stopped shaking and lay still against the pillows. His eyes stared unmoving at the ceiling. His hand released its hold on Bashir's, and Julian felt for a pulse he knew would not be there. Trevian was dead. Julian had gone to Ikoria's house that night to sleep. Though he had been offered a comfortable bed in Trevian's hospital, he just couldn't stay. He thought about Trevian and how little he knew about the man. They had so distrusted each other in the beginning, one believing the other would bring false hope and the other believing the one was killing any hope the people had. They'd both been wrong, each in their own way. Before Trevian's last day, he had only offered Bashir perhaps five minutes worth of kind words. But in those five minutes, Bashir had seen all the hopelessness drain from Trevian's face at the sight of Ikoria's child. He fell asleep remembering that day, Ikoria's last. The next day, he went straight to the hospital, but not to see Lauren. He went to help in whatever way he could. Yelena didn't seem to approve. She didn't want to put him to work while he was visiting, but he insisted. Some of the women, knowing that he was there, requested that he examine them and the babies they carried. He was kind to them and joked with them and listened when they talked about their families and their dreams. They were simple dreams, like Ikoria had had, to hold her child's hand when he took his first step or to kiss his knee when he fell. These women, since they hadn't quickened yet, might get to do those things, but Julian thought of the women down the hall, the ones who were dying already. As soon as he could, he excused himself from the examining room and went to see the others. Some were still in their early stages of quickening. Their lesions were inflamed, but they only suffered minor pain. Several were very close to giving birth, but others were feeling the effects, shaking and gritting their teeth against the pain. Most of them still had reason to hope. A week or two and they could deliver. But the one woman was so far gone that she would not be able to survive another day, let alone the three months until her baby was due. Her name was Aleke, and like Ecoria, she had already lost her husband. Her whole family had told her to take the herbs that would end her suffering, but she had disagreed. She had walked to the hospital herself. It had taken her two days. She had arrived at night when everyone was asleep and there was no one to help her. She had crawled halfway up the stairs before anyone had noticed. Since then, they've treated her well, but they still encouraged her to choose death. She refused, knowing that the vaccine had already saved her child from the blight. She knew she would die, but she wanted the child to live. Julian stayed with her most of the day, applying salve to her lesions and helping her to drink the marca root tea, and sometimes he just held her hand. He was called away in the afternoon when one of the other women went into labor. Yelena wanted him to assist in the delivery. He saw the longing in Aleke's eyes when he left her, but she was smiling when he returned. She asked about the baby, whether it was a boy or girl, and if it was healthy. And she asked about the mother, whether she had died or lived to hold her child. She had lived. 
She had been one of those who had only recently quickened. She would survive a few more weeks. Good, Eleke said, taking his hand. She gets to hold him. He had given her some cordrazine to dull the pain a bit, but the hand that held his was very weak. That's wonderful. She died that evening, still holding his hand. He spent the rest of the evening with Lauren, telling him all about his mother and how courageous she had been, how much she had loved her child, and how much she had wanted him to be born. Lauren didn't listen much, but Julian told him anyway, about her smile and her generosity, her understanding. She was the only one who had trusted him after his first failure. She was the only one who had still believed in him, even more than he did himself. Lauren fell asleep in his arms again. He looked up once the boy was asleep and found Yelena standing in the doorway. "'You should get some sleep, too,' she whispered as she came to take the sleeping baby from him. Until she said it, Bashir hadn't realized how tired he was or that the sun had gone down. He apologized, but Yelena wouldn't accept it. "'There's no need to apologize. I can see why she liked you so much.' Bashir wondered how long she'd been standing there listening, but he didn't ask, thinking it would be rude to do so. She turned to head back to the nursery. "'You were very kind to stay with Aleke today and to take care of Lauren.' She laid the baby in his bed and covered him with a thin blanket. Two men came with a cart to bury Aleke the next day. Julian went with them as they took her to the cemetery, a long plot of ground about a kilometer from the edge of the city. The graves were laid in rows, with only a few inches of dirt separating them side by side. They were laid out chrono chronologically, he knew from before, unmarked and unkept. The first ones they passed were almost unnoticeable, grown over with grass and weeds. But as they moved on, Julian could make out the boundaries of individual plots. After every ten graves, a small path, barely big enough for the cart, branched off horizontally, allowing access to the next long row. They passed row after row, each of them stretching all the way to the foothills in the distance. The grass became thinner as they went, until finally they came to a barren area with mounds of newly disturbed earth. They placed her in the first of ten freshly prepared graves. There was no ceremony, no words said over her. They simply put her in the ground and covered her body with soil. But Julian found he could not just leave when the others did. He felt differently about death than they did. For them, the ceremony was in dying. The body wasn't important. But he felt it cold to simply bury someone and walk away. He knelt down and smoothed some of the dirt. Then he wrote her name there with his fingers. He knew it wouldn't last. But for a little while, it would be a reminder of her. I'm sorry, he whispered. Then he rose and walked away. His throat was hurting again, and the wind was stinging his eyes. He stopped for a moment and looked back at the city. From where he stood, it looked alive. Physically, it had changed little from his previous visit, but the atmosphere had lost its harshness. Lights danced in some of the buildings. People still walked among, along the streets. He looked around him at the immensity of the cemetery, with its monotony of dull gray grass blending to reddish-brown earth. This was a city, the city he remembered. He was glad to see it had changed. One spot of blue and the mass of green caught his eye, and he walked toward it. As he did, he again felt a familiarity with the setting. He'd come this way before. As he neared the spot, he could see that the color was held by the petals of a small bouquet of flowers. He recognized them, too. He'd laid them, freshly picked, on Acoria's grave after he'd brought her there. Someone had dried the flowers to make them last. A patch of grass had been removed from her plot, 
and he could still see, barely see her name where he'd written it one year before. No doubt someone had retraced the letters from time to time. Julian knelt down and traced them again until they were clear, and then he felt he couldn't rise. It's so different now, Acoria, he said. I wish you could see it. They have hope now, and it's all because of you. The end. Oh my, I don't know if you noticed my voice got a little off there toward the end. That was because I was actually crying. I do try to read my stories every once in a while, like years in between. It allows me to find typos that I couldn't see when I was too familiar with the stories. This one was written and posted in 1999, and in, I don't know that I had read it since I'd posted it. So it was a long time, and yes, I did find typos. I have a friend who says they breed in the dark, and I think she's right. So I did find typos, and I'm going to fix them and get those posted right away so that the typos are gone if somebody should find these stories again. But reading them again after so long lets me read them as a reader. And I'd forgotten just how emotional that story was. And I remembered that episode and all the emotions in it. And the story just brought them back. And I just think it was really, really lovely. I'm really glad I wrote that. Okay, let's leave those tears behind. Now it's time to talk about one of my favorite things about writing. It's magic. Writing is magic. That's the bigger thing. There's a different way I'll talk about the magic, but this, first, this one's first. Writing is magic. It is telepathy. Go with me on this. I, I see a scene in my head or hear it. I write it. You read it, and now you have the same scene in your head. Tolkien told stories to his kids, put those stories in their heads. Then he wrote them down as the Lord of the Rings. He put those stories into millions of heads. One was Peter Jackson's head, so he put them into a movie so we could see the stories with our e eyes and hear it with our ears, long after J.R.R. Tolkien had died. But there are other ways that writing is magic. I say this almost every episode. I love to talk about writing, really talk about it, get into the nitty-gritty, beyond the grammar, beyond the mechanics. I love to get into the magic. Writing is a little like being God, not that I'm trying to be sacrilegious. Where else in our world can we create whole other worlds and new people and have the power of life or de and death over them? In writing, we can. We have all the control. Or so we think. Because that's where the magic kicks in. How is it possible that when the writer is actually writing the scene, she can be surprised by an event she writes? How can a character she doesn't like become a major character in the story when her favorite character gets relegated to a minor role and she meant it in the other way around? How is it that a character can say something as she writes his words that turns her own thoughts right on their heads? How is it that Jordan, no more than an extra, a one-time player in Osvianchim, determined for himself that he would end up a hero? Didn't I create him? Didn't I control him? All of those things happened to me, and more. I think each writer is gifted or not given, gifted in areas. Dwemerdine, for example, says she sees scenes. She could see Faramir leaning his arm on the mantle of a fireplace. She could tell you every detail of the mantle and what he was wearing. 
I'm aural. I hear things like dialogue. So for me, I was being literal when I said to listen to your characters. I don't hear every dialogue I write, but I do hear some. My faith trilogy started with one of those. I was getting ready for bed, washing my face when I heard it. Dr. Bashir actually sounded menacing. I couldn't believe it. He was confronting Captain Sisko about how he knew why the Romulans joined the war. He was actually scaring Captain Sisko. He backed him into the wall. I had to know where that was going. I had to know how it got to that point. Once the story was written, I got a lot of comments saying that was their favorite scene. <laughs> Mine too! I heard another one for the second story of the trilogy. Dr. Bashir was telling someone why he was jealous of a person who had committed suicide. I was just walking through my apartment, passing the dining room table, when I heard it. Myth and memory started when I heard this guy speaking in a British accent like they use in the films. I was seated upon my horse, then I found myself seated on the ground. That's how I knew the story had to be in first person, because it's how it came to me. Most of the stories I write are stories that came to me. I write from inspiration. It's hard for me to just say, I want to write a short story today and then do it. Rather, the idea for the story or scene or dialogue has to come to me. Sometimes the idea is sparked by a challenge or something someone says. The lure of the darkness came from a latent desire to see a, a story set in Mirkwood during the time of the Necromancer. Until Dwemerdine wrote, while encouraging people to take up the challenge, that we could write from the point of view of the monster. Right there, I had the idea for the story. Write from the point of view of a Mirkwood spider in the time of the Necromancer. Sometimes my stories come through daydreams. I have ordinary daydreams like other people. I even have stupid daydreams and Mary Sue daydreams. But sometimes I get good ones, and they persist, playing again and again, tweaking each time until they are just right. I take notes so I won't forget, then incorporate those scenes directly into the story when I write it. I call those inspired scenes key scenes, and inevitably, when anyone tells me which scenes are their favorites, they end up being key scenes. Because those key scenes are when the magic did the writing, not me. I just typed it up. Something else, something better than me, built those key scenes and showed them to me. And if I remained faithful to it in the typing, it worked. That is the way the whole, that whole stories are for me. Stray from the path set by those key scenes and the story won't work. Faith, too, nearly went off track that way. I hurried to finish it in time to be considered for that year's awards. I hurried it and I left the path. I hated it. I pulled it from the awards and had to rewrite the end to go back to my original notes to the story that had been set out for me. Other times the magic happened while I was typing. The first time was with the Ghidari, a race I made to, up to cover a murder in a bar at lunchtime. I needed someone who wore hoods or it would be just too easy to catch the killer. Then I spliced in aspects of the Ferengi and the Klingons and created a new, highly ethnocentric alien race and killed one of them. That was it. He wasn't the killer. He was the source for the hood of the killer. That was all I needed from them. But they wouldn't settle for obscurity. They kept coming back, more powerful and, well, spookier each time. I don't know whether they are good guys or bad guys, and I created them. I still don't, and I'm supposed to supposedly going to write their whole world now. They were a hit with the readers. Likewise, Jordan wouldn't settle for being a seat warmer. He was created simply to take over the helm when Kira got up. That's it. 
but he happened to be sitting in another seat when an important clue came to, Bashir, uh, to Bashir, clue to Bashir's location was found. Then he volunteered for a dangerous assignment and ended up being the one who found Bashir after spending a day in an Auschwitz work commando. I killed him in another story, or did I? And readers howled, not Jordan. Garrick is a Cardassian spy, but a freelance one. He's very clever, or as my brother has said about Cardassians, he's slippery like to wet catfish. He intimidates me as a writer. I'm afraid I won't be clever enough with him. So the first time I wrote him, I kept it safe. He was an hallucination. And still, when actually writing the dialogue, he took my near-worshipable thoughts on Bashir's idealistic, selfless reasons for returning to Auschwitz after being rescued and showed how they were selfish in the end. I had no idea he would do that. The point of all this is, if you let it, the writing can be magic. Immerse yourself in the story. Imagine it whenever you can. The more you imagine it, the better your chances of experiencing that magic. My best writing is always done by the magic. The work I have to do to link those key scenes is second best. And in those surprises, I'm entertained and not doing what I predict. I may know that I need to get from point A, key scene, to point B, key scene, but just have to write the parts in between. And if I do keep writing, aiming myself at point B, sometimes the magic will take over and take me deeper. I'll still end up at point B because I'm left-brained and logical and have to be linear like that. But something brilliant or unexpected might happen in between. I know, well, I don't know, actually, that the magic works for everyone. Maybe it's just a gift only for some of us. But it's a hoot, and I hope you can experience it. As you write more, and as readers tell you what they like about your writing, you'll find your gifts and talents, and also your weaknesses. Work on your weaknesses, but don't let them stop you. Your gifts can outweigh them. I have a weakness in that I don't visualize well. I can't see it, so I can't describe it, and yet I've had people praise my descriptions. Remember Immortal? There was a door, a bed, a table, a chair, some blankets. Yeah, that's about it. I didn't describe the room more than that. And some of the reviews for that story say they love my descriptions. By this, I've decided I have a gift in deceiving people into thinking I've described things. I know I have a gift in expressing emotions, really getting into the character's feelings and thoughts and taking the reader with me. I also have a gift for dialogue. People comment that my dialogues sound natural. I have a gift for languages, not just in being able to study them, but being in being able to create ones that don't look like someone threw up on their keyboard, as one reviewer wrote. I have more recently discovered I have a gift for pacing. I've reread my stories because a dead hard drive ate them and I needed to recreate the files anyway, also to look for those elusive new typos. Usually, before a big one, I'd be a little reluctant. 600 pages could take forever. But I started and found myself reading chapter after chapter because I couldn't put it down. Did the same thing with my trilogy. And Alien Us, the one that took ten years to write and post? There may have been six months between each chapter, but when you read it, it holds together as if I wrote it in one sitting. You may not write like me, or your favorite authors, but if you write, you'll find that you write like you. Some important advice before I finish today. Show, don't tell. 
that one is in just about every writing class you'll ever take. I'm actually studying to be a travel writer, and guess what? Show, don't tell when you're being a travel writer. Don't tell what happened, show what happened. That's why I describe scenes in POV as in looking through a camera or events happening on screen. Would you be annoyed if your favorite TV show came back from commercial and one character told you told another about some exciting thing that happened while you were watching the commercials that's really important to the plot. I've seen a professional Star Trek book that was otherwise good do that. Built us right, built us right up to the battle, and we, then we turn the page, and the battle's over, and someone fills us in on how it went. Don't do that. Show the battle. Even more important advice... The most important advice any writer can give to any aspiring writer of fan fiction or pro fiction is to write. The more you write, the better you get if you try to succeed. So don't sit on your laurels thinking you're great. Fix your mistakes when you find them. I found some while reading that story and I'm going to fix them. Work on your weaknesses. Really work on your strengths. Stretch yourself and experiment. Above all, write. Next time, I want to start reading one of my longer stories. Maybe the first one. Maybe by the time we finish, I'll have found some other aspect of writing to talk about, or I'll interview another fanfiction writer on her process or what works for him. I hope you enjoyed Healer, and I hope you experience that magic. Get out there and write. You can drop me a line by tweeting at Inhildi, I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I, or leaving a message at fanfiction.net or archive of our own. Until next time.